Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 29, produced by Jesus Centered Resources. I said that as if Jesus Centered Resources is actually a thing yet. And if you've been listening for the last month or so, you know that Jesus Centered Resources is my uh, sort of temporary umbrella name for whatever it is I'm doing next. So I'm working on a bunch of different things right now uh, in transition out of my longtime uh, leadership role at Group Publishing. I am now uh, exploring new possibilities career-wise, but also uh, trying to uh, develop and build some things that um, I could connect with people around uh, resources that, that help us orbit closer to Jesus. So, so I didn't know what that's going to be yet. I'm, I'm still actually building a, a website to help support this and, and working on developing some things that have been in my hopper for a long time. And I'll let you know when I have something to say, but for now it's called Jesus Centered Resources. Who knows what it'll be called in the future? If you're uh, listening for the first time, my name is Rick. I'm author of uh, a bunch of books. Uh, sometimes, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I, I can't believe when I look down the list that I actually wrote all those things. Uh, and sometimes, you, you know, as an author, sometimes you go back um, for one reason or another and, and dip into one of the books that you've written before. And when I do that, I think, wow, I sure did spend a lot of time writing this thing. <laughs> So uh, last year, I released a book called The God Who Fights For You, which was an updated version of a book I wrote about 12 years ago, 10 years ago, called Sifted. So The God Who Fights For You is an updated, uh, a little bit slimmer version of that book. And it's a book for people that are going through darkness or are willing to look into the darkness and find Jesus somewhere there in the shadows. Um, so if you're facing uh, a trauma, or trying to get over a trauma, or just having a trauma surfaced in your life, um, or you're going through great challenge or difficulty, and you're wondering where Jesus is in the midst of it, oh, The God Who Fights For You is a book written just for you. So, And uh, before that, the year before that, uh, the book I wrote and released was called Spiritual Grit. It's an approach to perseverance and resilience that invites Jesus into that equation instead of just your own bootstraps. <laughs> And before that, it was a book called The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of a foundational book that helped spawn this podcast. And of course, I'm the editor, uh, general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. So um, I've mentioned before also that, uh, that my book, uh, my new daily devotional, The Jesus-Centered Daily, is uh, about six weeks-ish from coming out. It'll be out in early October. And I just got my first advanced copies of it. And oh my gosh, um, that is an experience to, to get this thing that you've invested a couple years of your life into. And now to see it come to fruition, this is, this is the end uh, in a way of a very long journey and the start of a new one as it's about to be published and people are about to uh, interact with it and relate with it. That's what's uh, coming up on the horizon. So I'm actually building a website just for the Jesus Centered Daily. 
And I'm, I'm working on that. It's slow work because I'm, turns out I'm not actually a website developer, <laughs> but I'm learning. It's steep learning curve, but I love learning and I'm curious and I get frustrated with myself when I don't understand what to do and why this thing won't do what I tell it to. But I am working on getting that site ready so that you can uh, experience and, and download a little snippet of that. And also for this crew, the, those of you who listen to this podcast or members of the Pigs, which is a private Facebook group for, just for people who listen to this podcast and want to connect their lives around Jesus and ask questions and input into each other's lives. Uh, if, if you're interested in being a part of that Facebook group, just go to our website, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and look for episode five. Uh, I'm sorry, season five, episode 29, and you'll see a link you can ask to join that group. But for that group and for those who listen to this podcast, I'm going to uh, throw out to you um, uh, a possibility for you to get involved with the Jesus Center Daily and maybe get a copy early um, uh, before everyone else and some other stuff. So I'll tell you more about that in episodes soon to come. Um, so this is uh, episode uh, 29 of, of this year, uh, our fifth season. And this is actually the seventh, um, the seventh of our episodes in this new series that I've been doing called In His Image. And In His Image is really about, um, it's really focused on that uh, little phrase in Genesis when we understand that God created human beings in his image. And, we, and we, when we slow down and pay attention to what that really means, it doesn't mean that somehow we are sketched in the physical image of God. It means that we reflect his essence. And so what we're trying to do is explore um, what the essence of God is that we also reflect in our everyday lives. And Jesus made it pretty clear that, um, you know, that part of his mission was to give us a tangible way of understanding and experiencing the God we can't see. So Jesus basically said, if you see me, you see the Father. Everything you see me doing, the Father's doing. I learn from the Father. I, I only do what I see the Father doing. So he's encouraging us over and over again to pay attention to him, hence the name of this podcast, so that we can come to know God in a more intimate way. And so, um, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're exploring the essence of Jesus and then making connections to how we reflect that in our everyday life. So there you have it. And uh, in this episode, episode number seven, we're going to explore something that sounds a little funny when you first say it as something that is core to who Jesus is, core to his heart. And that is relaxed, that Jesus is fundamentally relaxed. Um, I didn't always use that word to describe Jesus, but I heard a story that I'll get to in just a minute that changed all that for me. So um, we'll dive into that in just a second. So um, the first thing I'd like to do though is, is, is dive into one of the strangest stories about Jesus that is in the Bible. I mean, it, it's up there. And there's a lot of strange stories in the Bible. If you're paying attention and you're reacting uh, like a normal human being, when you read some of these stories, you think, oh my gosh, if that really happened, and it did, um, it would blow my mind. Well, this is one of those blow my mind stories. And it's in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. So it's just a little story. There's a lot packed into it. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to read through this little story first. 
And then I'm going to read through it a second time, pausing to add some detail to the story. We'll take a deeper dive the second time around, but let's read, read it through the first time to just get acquainted with the story, and then we'll go back into it. So Matthew 17, 24 through 27, if you're not driving and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to that uh, portion of scripture, do that. Otherwise, here we go. On their arrival in Capernaum, and this is there is Jesus and his disciples. On their arrival in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him, hey, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, yes, he does, Peter replied. And then he went into the house. But before he had a chance to speak, Jesus asked him, well, what do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people or the people they have conquered? Peter said, well, they tax the people they've conquered. Well, then Jesus said, the citizens are free. However, we don't want to offend them, so go down to the lake and throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish you catch, and you will find a silver coin. Take it and pay the tax for both of us. Okay, there you have it. Just three verses, 24 through 27. But wow, what a strange story. <laughs> what a kind of ridiculous story. What an unbelievable story in lots of ways. This is the kind of story that typifies what I call mud puddles. Uh, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a long time know what a mud puddle is. It is a, uh, something in scripture, usually about Jesus, that we come up to, and we just jump over it. We just kind of side skirt it because either it doesn't make sense to us, or it seems so unbelievable, or it's over the top. So we just sidestep it. And Jesus said the kingdom of God belongs to children, and children, when they come up to a mud puddle, they jump into it. They wallow around in it. They splash around. And that's what we do here on the podcast. We splash around in mud puddles. And this is one of them. We come up to this strange, ridiculous, crazy story, and we say something like, oh, that's Jesus for you. <laughs> I don't know what is going on there. I can't even imagine that that actually happened, but it's in the Bible, so oh well. Something like that happens inside of us when we come up to stories like this. We don't usually react to them as if it actually happened, because it would blow our mind just to think about this happening in real in real, in real life. So let's slow down and add some detail to this story. So here we go again, Matthew 17, 24 through 27. On their arrival in Capernaum, pause, Capernaum is where Jesus now makes his home. That's important to know. He grew up in Nazareth, he launched his ministry, and now his home, semi-permanent home, is in Capernaum. Remember, Jesus said he had no place to really permanent to lay his head. So it's not like uh, he's at, at home all the time. But if there was going to be a home base for Jesus and his disciples, this is it in Capernaum. So just continuing on, on their arrival in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax, let's pause again, the temple tax, what is that? Well, that is an ancient tax that began in the time of Moses as a way to make sure that the temple, which was the physical um, the the, the physical structure that housed the presence of God um, at the temple would continue to be kept well and staffed well. That it was a it was a tax that all men over the age of 20 years old had to pay every year to make sure that there was temple upkeep. It's it's sort of like a taxes we pay right now for uh, government buildings to be kept up and staffed. Um, this was a tax, by the way, that that 
wasn't really disputed or fought um, like the like the Roman pagan taxes that people were forced to to pay and therefore hated the tax collectors of those. The temple tax collectors were not hated people. They were people just doing their job for something that all uh, ancient Jews believed was necessary, the upkeep of the temple. So again, it was only a tax that was levied on all men who were over 20 years old. And it had been being paid for centuries and centuries. So, so the, the payment was to make sure that the quote unquote home of God was presentable. So, so the collectors of the temple tax come to Peter and they ask him, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And this, this question really is, isn't your teacher over the age of 20? <laughs> that, that's another way of saying it. Um, and of course, at this time, Jesus is 30. So he's, the, the temple tax collectors are basically saying, we can tell he's over the age of 20. Isn't he over the age of 20? Because he would owe this tax for sure. It's like when you go through the grocery line and you've bought a six pack of beer, let's say, and the clerk asks to see your ID. And you are clearly um, over the age to buy a six pack of beer, but they have to do it anyway, formally. But you both know when you look at each other, yeah, I know you're over the age of 21. So uh, this was kind of one of those moments with these temple tax collectors. Like, yeah, uh, we know he's over 20. Is he paying the tax? And Peter says, yes, he does. And then Peter goes into the house. And before he has a chance to say anything, Jesus asks him, what do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people or the people they've conquered? And Peter replied, gives the obvious answer. They, well, they tax the people they've conquered. Well, then Jesus said, the citizens are free. <laughs> There's an exclamation point at the end of that little statement. So let's pause again. This is kind of a snarky comment by Jesus because uh, he knows um, who he is. <laughs> He's the king and the temple of God is now him. So why should he have to pay a tax on himself? Um, he's a king um, who is king of kings. So why should he have to pay any tax whatsoever? Uh, so Jesus in a snarky way is pointing out to Peter and in also an important way, reminding Peter of who he is, that, that he's not just joking around here that he's the Messiah and the son of God. He is constantly referencing this with his disciples. He's trying to show them and tell them, hey, this is for real. I really am the son of God. I'm the king. So Jesus, in a kind of a delightful, playful, snarky way, um, uh, is making this point that he shouldn't have to pay this tax, technically speaking. Uh, and then he, Jesus continues to Peter. However, we don't want to offend them. Pause again. Uh, the question is, when Jesus says we don't want to offend them, the question is, why not? He was offending people all the time. Why this particular circumstance is he not willing to offend these guys? He has no problem offending people. That, that is one of the, the, the greatest um, missed characteristics of Jesus in the world. When most people think that he's simply a nice guy, they're simply not paying attention to the stories of Jesus. He was constantly offending people, either by being too, too kind or too forgiving or too bold. <laughs> he was constantly offending people. So he, he says to Peter, uh, yeah, but we don't want to offend him. So go on down to the lake, which is actually the Sea of Galilee. Go on down to the lake and throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish you catch. And by tradition, a little short pause here, 
that fish was a tilapia. Uh, so if you, if you like tilapia, you're eating uh, the fish with a coin in its mouth. And it's interesting that tilapia, by the way, has a little pouch below its mouth where it, it's, it's kind of uh, used to care for a little baby tilapia to keep them away from predators and also to store food sometimes in there. But it has this perfect little pouch that could hold a coin as it turns out. So the tilapia is the fish that Peter eventually catches. And Jesus is saying, open the mouth of the first fish you catch and you will find a large silver coin in that little pouch. And the coin uh, that Jesus is referencing here is a four drachma coin. It's a silver coin that is exactly enough to pay the annual tax for both himself and Peter. Uh, so it is the exact amount that they need to pay this tax for two people. And what's interesting about this is he's only paying the tax for two people. That means that amongst their, the, this, this uh, traveling party of 13, Jesus and his 12 disciples, only two of them are over 20. Only two of them owe the temple tax. So that's Jesus, um, who's 30, Peter, who owned his own commercial fishing business. So it's pretty obvious that he's, he's over 20. And then you have the rest of them, who are all basically teenagers. So all those images you've seen your whole life of the disciples, and they're all basically late 30s, early 40s uh, men <laughs> that look a little grizzled, uh, for the most part, th that's a wrong picture. They were all teenagers, which is not that surprising that they were all teenagers because at that time, uh, those who attached themselves to a rabbi, which Jesus was called Rabboni, which means that he was treated as a rabbi, those who attached themselves to a rabbi were all teenagers. That, and once they attached themselves to that rabbi, they left their family home, moved in, with that rabbi, became a part of his life, and learned not just sort of what you might call book learning, but learned a way of life from that rabbi, the way, the way to pray, the way to worship, um, the way to dress, the way to walk, uh, what's good to eat and what isn't, how to prepare your food. They learned everything from that rabbi. They, they got immersed in that rabbi's presence, and that rabbi's presence infected everything about them. So this would have been common to see a rabbi with 12 teenagers surrounding him. You know, in this case, 11 teenagers and Peter. So, so they pay the temple tax only for two of them. And the rest are teenagers, typifying this rabbi-Talmud relationship. So there we have this strange little story. And a couple of questions just pop, pop into my head right away. So the first one is, you know, well, why does Jesus say that he didn't want to offend the temple tax collectors by telling them he didn't really have to pay because he was God? Why, why would he not want to offend these guys when he's very comfortable offending people? And I, I think uh, if you think about the context here, these temple tax collectors were just doing their job and Jesus agreed with their job. He was just in a delightful, profound way at the same time, trying to point out that he really shouldn't have to pay this tax. But why quibble with that at this point with these temple tax collectors? Usually when Jesus offends someone, he's trying to make a point about something. And in this case, he's not really trying to make a point at this juncture of his trajectory with these temple tax collectors. Now, if this had been later in his trajectory when Jesus was purposefully antagonizing um, religious leaders left and right, 
trying to make the point that he is in fact God. And that point that he's making, that he is in fact God, is what got him killed. Um, it's not quite time for him to vigorously make that point because it's not his time to go to the cross yet. So he's not really interested in offending these guys because he doesn't feel the need to make a big point about this um, like he might with some other uh, uh, religious leaders or, or some other kind of collection of tax. Um, he's not trying to make his point. So, uh, and he's also, it's not his time. So second question that comes out of here is the elephant in the living room. Why the heck would Jesus decide to pay this tax in such a ridiculous and miraculous way? Why, why would he do that? It seems crazy that he would go to, through all these gyrations to pay this tax. But if you stand back from this, the, the, the thing that stands out is Jesus's delightful playfulness. Like he's, he's doing this with a big smile on his face. I can imagine him laughing hard as he tells Peter to do this and, and laughing even harder when Peter uh, catches that fish and pulls that four drachma coin out of the little pouch in the mouth. I mean, imagine it, it's almost like a prank. It's, it's, it's almost like a college student prank that Jesus is pulling here. And it's not just being pulled on, on Peter or the tax collectors. All of his disciples are for sure going to hear about this story that Jesus paid the tax in this crazy, uh, fun, pranky sort of way. It's a reminder, I think, that our view of Jesus as uh, solemn and somber and intense and, and sort of like, uh, like a, a, a mysterious mystic um, is not an accurate picture of the whole of who Jesus was. Jesus was a magnetic person, and children in particular were very drawn to him. What kind of people are children naturally drawn to? Like they sense your presence and they, and they, act, and they naturally want to be in your presence. Well, they're not drawn to intense, super serious, uh, glowering mystics. <laughs> they're just not. They're drawn to people who have delightful energy in their life. Uh, a, a sort of um, catalytic presence that is magnetic for the people around you. That's who children are drawn to, uh, people who love to play. And Jesus loved to play. And here he is playing with Peter, playing with his disciples, playing with the tax collectors. And he's doing it in a miraculous way because he can. There is a, there is a kind of a semi-serious intent underneath this. He is always and everywhere trying to remind people that, hey, I'm not your average rabbi. Um, I'm going to show you something that no rabbi has ever done or ever will do. Um, I'm trying to remind you that I am who I say I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. Um, and I'm relaxed about that. I can play with that uh, and, and pay the tax in a kind of a kooky way to remind you of both things. Hey, I'm God and I like to play. In fact, I like to prank sometimes. So if you think about the one word that describes Jesus in this story. I know that the, the theme of this podcast is relaxed. So let's throw that out the window for just a second. Uh, what's another word that describes Jesus in this story? You, you could say he's, he's playfully mysterious. Um, you could say he's delightfully intentional, I guess. <laughs> These aren't one words, by the way. They're, I'm aware that I'm using two words right now. I'm sorry. Uh, you, could, you could say that in general, he's just playful, um, or he's goofy, 
or he's silly even. Is it okay to call Jesus silly? In this story, he, he's, he's doing something silly, um, even though it's miraculous. Uh, all of those words fit. But let's come back to that word relaxed. Um, that I told you at the start that um, I, I didn't start referring to Jesus as relaxed until I heard this powerful story a few years ago. Toward the end of the great theologian Dallas Willard's life, he asked one of his former students, um, a man, an adult man who continued to meet with Dallas Willard as his mentor. He asked this man in one of their last meetings together because Dallas Willard was near the end of his life. Uh, he asked this man to describe Jesus with one word. Well, if you can imagine if you were with somebody that was sort of your mentor, you had such great respect for their, for their uh, theological mind and their long relationship with Jesus, that you would feel some pressure to choose the right word. And that's what this guy felt. He was chewing and chewing on what, what right answer he would choose. He wanted to please his mentor. He wanted to choose an answer that his mentor would say, wow, that is a great description of Jesus. But he got so wrapped up in that that he couldn't choose any word. He had so many words to choose from, he couldn't choose any of them. And so finally, in frustration, he said, well, Dallas, what's the word you would choose for the one word to describe Jesus? And, and Dallas Willard said right away, his one word for Jesus was relaxed. Relaxed. So uh, when Dallas Willard shared this word with, his, with the man he was mentoring, um, it lodged in this guy's head and he couldn't stop thinking about it. He had never thought of Jesus in this way. The more he thought about it, he, th he thought, well, you know, Jesus waited 30 years to begin his ministry. You could say he waited 18 years to, to begin his ministry because at, at 12, he was considered at that time. Now, now you're an adult, <laughs> believe it or not, 12 year olds. Um, so you could say he waited 18 years to begin his ministry, but he, he didn't begin it until he was 30 years old. And, and the Messiah's job description was to set captives free. So that means that he waited a long time before he launched into that sort of public ministry. And then he had just three years to upend the world. So given all of that, the, if you think about yourself and what you know your mission is supposed to be, and you know how much you need to do, and then you wait until you have just three years to do it, um, what that tells you is that he understood all that, and nevertheless, he was relaxed. Jesus also knew he needed his disciples to so believe that he was the Messiah, that he is who you said he was, that they would literally die for him. He needed that to happen. But still, he only gave himself three years with them to make his point. Not the traditional, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years that a Talmud was typically with their rabbi. This was just three years. And he had to so uh, cement his identity with them that after he was gone, they'd be willing to die for him. And yet, and, and all of them, all, uh, all 12 of them did die um, proclaiming and serving Jesus. Um, 11 of them were executed, and John, maybe the, the cruelest fate of all, John was locked up in a prison on an island for the length of his entire life. Um, so they all did die for him in the end. And so he had this urgency to reveal himself as the Messiah to them, and yet he was patient, he was relaxed, he wasn't in a hurry about it. You know, if, if you think even more, Jesus could only be in one place at a time. He's fully God, but also fully human. And there were needs 
everywhere. There were sick people and possessed people and lame people everywhere. But he could only be in one place at one time. And he never seemed to hurry between places. He was relaxed in the face of great needs, needs that he knew he could meet. He also knew that all of redemption depended on him facing the horror of the cross and the torture of his scourging and the, the absolute nightmare of being separated from his father briefly. He knew all of this he would need to lean into and, and uh, complete for uh, this bridge of redemption to be built so that we could be back in intimate relationship with God. He knew all of this was on his shoulders. He had to do his job as a Messiah and bring it to completion. And yet he was relaxed. He was willing to wait. He didn't uh, pull the trigger too soon on all this. He was relaxed about it. Um, finally, he, was, he lived his whole life misunderstood and vilified and opposed and connived against. And in the midst of all of it, it was really hard to get under Jesus' skin. He was relaxed in the midst of all this. He was always thinking strategically when he was in the middle of all this. He wasn't uh, off his game um, based on this. So relaxed, I think, is a very important word for us to understand the heart of Jesus. And because we are made in his image, it's an important word for us to get our minds around especially during this time when so many of us are on, on DEFCON 5 or whatever the DEFCON is that is bad. <laughs> Maybe that's DEFCON 10. Uh, but we're on high alert. We're white knuckling our way through a pandemic and all kinds of uh, cultural upheaval right now and political upheaval and spiritual upheaval. And it's a white knuckle, white knuckle time. Relaxation seems not even possible uh, most days. And yet, relaxed is core to who Jesus is. Therefore, we also have the capacity to reflect that in our lives. So I thought it would be interesting uh, before we dive uh, uh, further into this to have a little experience of relaxation. So what I'm going to do is, is play you a, a short portion, um, maybe just five minutes of some spoken word relaxation. I thought this would be interesting, uh, no matter whether you're driving right now or not driving, I'd like you to just uh, relax, sort of consciously be aware of the tension in your body and start to relax your arms and legs and hands and face. And we're just gonna listen to some spoken word uh, relaxation um, for about five minutes. And I want you to follow along with what the person is saying as you listen and allow yourself to relax, no matter what context you're listening to this podcast in. It's just going to be five minutes of this. So, but I want you to have enough of this experience that you can talk about what relaxation really feels like and what goes into it. So let's, let's go ahead and listen to about five minutes of spoken relaxation now. Allow your eyes to comfortably close. And breathe out in a long sigh through your open mouth if you like. Let yourself know that it's completely okay 
to be exactly as you are right now. When you are ready, bring your attention down to the contact your body is making with the surface directly beneath it. Give more of your weight to the support. Become aware of the volume of your body and its movements as you breathe. In your own time, begin to slow your breath down and allow it to lengthen. Notice the expansion of the in-breath, the release of the out-breath. Allow your shoulders to soften and your belly soften. And become aware of the sensation as air enters and leaves your nostrils. Notice the air is cool as it enters warm as it leaves. All right, that was an experience, wasn't it? <laughs> so what words describe for you what relaxed really means? I mean, if you think about what that experience was like for you, how do you describe that? I think for me, um, relaxed means uh, uh, sort of the, the tension leaking out of my body. Or relaxed means that I'm um, focused, that my mind and heart are simple. I'm not scattered and chewing on five different things at once, that I'm focused in, in it. Or relaxed means that... Um, uh, I'm in my element. You know how when you're with friends who really get you and communicate how much they're delighted by you and how much they enjoy being around you, your spirit and your soul relax. You, you feel comfortable being vulnerable and sharing who you really are. You stop performing. Your insecurities, at least for a little bit, relax because you have people around you who are communicating how much they enjoy you. So relax can mean that as well, that, that you stop fighting inside, that 
in a sense that you, you're, you're in a, a posture of acceptance um, that as much as we live our lives in control for these moments when we feel relaxed, we release control, sort of let ourselves float down the river a little bit instead of fighting all the time. That's, that's what relaxed means. Relaxed means that you're operating out of your true identity. And you, you, it, it sometimes athletes call this flow when the, they're not thinking anymore. They're not striving anymore. They're just, they're just living out who they are. Um, there's a fluidity, sort of a poetry to their athleticism. And, and the same thing is true in our own lives. When we feel like we're living out of who we really are, there's a sort of a poetry, a fluidness to who we are and our impact on others. I think those are some good descriptive words for what relaxed means. Maybe you have some more to add that would uh, round that out. But let's now go back to Dallas Willard's word choice to describe Jesus. Of course, it's relaxed. We know what he said, but just like the man he said it to, uh, we haven't yet explored well, why did he say that? Why is that his favorite prior, uh, priority word to describe Jesus? It's important to listen to that, I think, because Dallas Willard changed the way people think about a relationship with Jesus. His book, The Divine Conspiracy, was a game changer and many others that he wrote. Um, he clearly is a man who had a long and deep and intimate relationship with Jesus. So when someone who's lived their life, their whole life that way, and is now aged and nearing death, and they choose to describe Jesus with this one word relaxed, um, a, a learner, a curious person, a Jesus follower will perk their ears up and, and ask themselves, why did he use that word? Why is relaxed a perfect word to describe Jesus? So that's the question we're going to explore right now here at the, uh, in, in the, the last minutes of the podcast today. Why is relaxed a perfect word to describe Jesus? So here's what I'd like to take a whack at. Um, we're going to choose a chapter from one of the four Gospels, and I'm just going to skim it. I'll kind of narrate the chapter a little bit so we're not reading, uh, reading it all verbatim. But if you want to open to Luke 7, if you're not driving, um, if you want to flip open your Bible to Luke chapter 7, um, it might be interesting for you to follow along as I sort of narrate the chapter. You might see things that I don't, um, because what we're going to be doing here is looking for evidence for why relaxed is a perfect word to describe Jesus. We're going to assume the premise which is that relaxed is a perfect word to describe Jesus. And we're going to look for evidence for why, that, why that's true by just skimming through Luke chapter 7. Now, I chose Luke 7 almost randomly. You could choose almost any chapter of the Bible uh, of, of one of the Gospels to do this with. And you might try it um, after we've done this with Luke 7 on your own sometime in the next week. Choose a random chapter from one of the four Gospels and ask yourself the same question. Why is relaxed a perfect word to describe Jesus? And then look for evidence in the chapter you're reading. So Luke chapter 7, this, let me give you an overview first. Um, contained in this chapter of Luke is the story of uh, Jesus um, meeting a centurion who asks him to heal the daughter of his servant. 
so that's one of the stories that's in Luke 7. And then there's another story of Jesus raising the son of a widow. So we'll talk about that. And then there's another story where the disciples of John the Baptist um, were telling him everything Jesus was doing. And then John sends his disciples to Jesus to make sure that he's the Messiah. So there's that little story. And then um, the last story in Luke chapter 7 is Jesus at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Um, and he's anointed by a quote-unquote immoral woman. She brings some very expensive perfume to anoint his feet and weeps over his feet and dries his feet with her hair. There's that story at the end of Luke chapter 7. So there's a little overview of the four stories that are contained in Luke 7. So let's start out with, uh, in, my, in my Jesus-centered Bible, the, this first section of Luke 7 is called the faith of a Roman officer. So, so again, in this, in this scene, Jesus has returned to Capernaum, his, his um, adult home, I guess you could say, his home base, if he really had one. Um, and uh, a, a highly valued servant of this Roman officer was sick near death. And so when the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to come ask him to heal a slave. And uh, these, these Jewish elders were really begging Jesus to do this because this man had been such a help to the Jewish community. Um, he loved the Jewish people, and uh, they said even built a synagogue for them. So, so Jesus goes along with these Jewish elders, uh, intrigued by the story. And um, before they get to the house, the officer, this centurion, sends some friends out to say, don't trouble yourself, Jesus. You don't even have to come to your, my home. He, he's really being, he's really bowing the knee in, in so many ways here with Jesus and saying, you know, uh, you don't have to come. I understand this is not usually allowed. Uh, uh, a person like you entering the house of a pagan Roman officer. So you don't even need to trouble yourself coming to my home. I'm not worthy of the honor of your presence in my home. Um, I'm not even worthy to come out and meet you, he says. But he tells his friends to tell him, just say the word, and he knew that his servant would be healed. And the reason he gives for this is because he, he understands what it means to be under authority, and he's recognized that Jesus is the authority in the earth, and that all Jesus would have to do is say the word, and this servant would be healed because Jesus has authority over sickness and death. And it says Jesus was amazed by this, and he turned to the crowd that was following him, and he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the, officers returned, when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. So let's stop for a second. Our question is, why is relaxed a perfect word to describe Jesus in this scenario? So um, here, uh, it, there's so many different levels of this question. So Jesus is being asked by Jewish elders. So he didn't have an exactly a, a benign relationship with Jewish leaders, did he? Jewish religious leaders. He was most often in conflict with them. But these people really valued this Roman officer. He was very important to them because they had an ally on the inside of the government. And they wanted Jesus to do anything he could to help this guy. And so clearly they have some motivations from, they, they love this man, this Roman centurion, but he's also politically important to them. And Jesus isn't usually um, 
striving to meet the political goals of people that when they put them before him, and yet he's relaxed. He's relaxed when they tell him who this man is. He's relaxed enough to say, I'm, I'll go along with you. Let me, let me go to his house. And then the, with the man's response, so we, we, all, we know how Jesus responded, but how could he have responded? He could have said, oh, you don't want me to come to your house. Um, oh, there, there, there's something about me that you don't even want to show up in your house. He could have taken it a different way. He could have read that wrongly. Instead, he takes it at face value. And more than that, he's incredibly impressed with this man. And he's relaxed enough to tell the religious leaders and his disciples around him that this pagan Roman officer has more faith than anyone he has seen in Israel. Now, this is a startling statement that normally you'd be much more guarded about making if you were interested in playing the game as a Jewish religious leader. You would not be extolling the faith virtues of a pagan Roman officer. But Jesus doesn't care. He's relaxed about it. He knows what he sees when he sees it. And he sees extraordinary faith in this man. And the faith is expressed in this man accurately understanding who Jesus is, that Jesus has authority over sickness and death. His own closest friends aren't convinced of this. Not really, because they're constantly surprised. This man is not surprised. In fact, he wants Jesus to just say the word because he knows what's going to happen if he does. So Jesus is relaxed enough to extol the virtues of a man he probably shouldn't be doing. He, he shouldn't be doing that with this man, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what people think or whether he's playing the game right. He just says what the truth is. Right after this, it says that Jesus goes on with his disciples to this village called Nain, and a large crowd was following, and they come across a funeral procession coming out of this little village as he approaches the gate, and the, the young man who, who they were mourning was the widow's only son. And um, when Jesus saw her, it says his heart overflowed with compassion. He saw how broken this woman was, and he was just moved with compassion. So he cries out to her, don't cry. And then he walks over the coffin and he touches it. And the coffin bearers stop when he does this. And he speaks to the coffin and he says, young man, I tell you to get up. And then this dead boy sits up and begins to talk. And Jesus lifts him out of his coffin and gives him back to his mother. And it says, great fear swept the crowd and they praised God saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. And it says, then the news about Jesus spread everywhere around Judea and the surrounding countryside. So here we have Jesus on his way to somewhere. Um, he's on a mission. It, uh, I'm sure that, that there were many funeral processions that he and his disciples came across. But in this case, there's something about him, even though he's on his way to somewhere else, and this is a common scene, there, he's always paying attention to the people he comes across. And he's paying attention to this woman and something about her breaks his heart. He has compassion on her. He wants to do something about this. And once again, in front of everyone, he's relaxed enough to do what had never been done by anyone ever before. He speaks over the body of a dead boy and in, infuses life back into this young man. He's relaxed in that he comes across basically an insurmountable challenge. 
I feel for this woman, but what could I do? The average person would say, what could I do besides try to comfort her? Jesus instead comes across this woman and sees her need and says, oh, I can do something about this. And he infuses life into this little boy and gives him back to his mother. He's relaxed, empathetic, and compassionate toward her. He does not overlook her. If we go on to the next story, Jesus and John the Baptist, this is where the disciples of John um, were telling him everything that Jesus was doing. And uh, so he called for two of his disciples and he sent them to Jesus to ask a specific question. John's having some doubts. Even though he's hearing everything Jesus is doing, he wants some assurance that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. So he, he tells his to his, to his disciples to visit Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we be keep looking for someone else? So the disciples found Jesus and told them what they were supposed to ask. And Jesus found this question <laughs> kind of ironic because it comes in the context of these uh, John's disciples telling John everything Jesus had been doing, these extraordinary miracles and healings and the, the amazing things that Jesus had been saying about the kingdom of God. And uh, so it says that at, at that very time, in the middle of all this, Jesus had been curing many, many people of their diseases and their illnesses, and he'd been casting out evil spirits, and he'd been restoring sight to those who were blind. And so Jesus tells uh, the disciples of John to go back to him and say this, tell him what you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So I love this little portion of the story because basically Jesus could have said, of course, yes, yes, I'm the Messiah. Instead, what Jesus does in a very relaxed way, in, in, a, in a way that uh, I don't think I would ever do, instead of responding in a defensive way, uh, which defensiveness is produced by insecurity, uh, Jesus, who is completely secure, says, well, just go tell John what I've been doing again. I know you've already told him, but tell him that this is what I said, that these are the things I've been doing. Come on, John, get with the program. <laughs> um, he's, 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 again, playfully responding to John, even though what he's responding about is a serious thing. He's still playful with John. Only a relaxed person in this situation would not try to make a case for himself in the normal way we would. Instead, Jesus just points to the facts. Here's what I've been doing. Hey, John, draw your own conclusions, all right? Come on, buddy. <laughs> Get with the program. So um, I just love that response. It once again speaks to this secure, relaxed presence in Jesus. Now let's, let's uh, take a look at the last story here. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. So again, Simon the Pharisee had asked Jesus to have uh, share a meal with him. And while they were sharing this meal, this certain immoral woman from that city, and so we can infer by that that she was likely a prostitute, shows up uninvited, um, bringing a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Let's just stop there for a second. Um, this woman knows, by the way, that the penalty for adultery, which is what a prostitute does over and over again, penalty for adultery in Jewish culture was execution. And who meets out that ex uh, th those uh, execution orders? Well, it's, 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 it's the Pharisees that do. And so she's walking into the home 
of a person who could kill her and be justified in doing so. So she's taking a great risk. Likely, she is, uh, uh, she is one of the many in the crowds that have been listening to Jesus and following Jesus and seeing what he was doing. All of this healing and excising of, of uh, evil spirits and curing people of uh, incurable diseases and speaking about the kingdom of God. She had heard and seen these things. And she had become convinced about who he, who he was. So she was willing to roll the dice and risk everything to come uninvited to this private gathering and anoint Jesus' feet. It's an act of worship and humility that she's offering him. So she kneels at his feet and she's weeping. She's broken because she knows her emptiness. She knows her need. And she's bringing her need like an offering to Jesus. So she kneels before him and she anoints his feet and she not only spreads perfume on his feet, but her own tears. And she keeps kissing his feet and re-anointing them with perfume. And Simon, who's seen all this, is just absolutely disgusted. He can't believe this is happening. And why would this uh, up-and-coming young rabbi allow this to happen? Is he an idiot? Does he not know who this woman is? Why didn't he send her away immediately? What should I do? Should I step in? Uh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> this is shocking. Uh, and he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So he's saying to himself, I don't think this guy is who he says he is. If he's really a prophet, then why would he allow this kind of woman to do this? It, he, would, he must not be aware of what kind of woman she is. That's why he's doing it. Therefore, he must not be who he says he is. Now, here you have a woman who's acting perfectly in reflection about who Jesus really is. She is doing, everything she's doing is in recognition that, that everything Jesus has said about himself is true. She believes that he's the king of kings. She believes that he has authority over not only physical illnesses, but sin, because she brings her sin to him and in a profound and humble way offers, it, offers herself to him. She's longing for wholeness, and she's come to the right place. She knows what her need is, and she brings it to Jesus. Pharisee, typically, um, doesn't think they have a lot of needs. Think they're doing pretty good. I'm following everything as I'm supposed to. I'm, I'm doing pretty good here. And he does not see Jesus for who he is. His first thought inside is, this guy must not be who he says he is. So Jesus tells him the story about a man who loans money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 to another. Neither of them can repay the debt. So the man forgives both debts, and, which is extraordinary because if you can't pay a debt at that time, of course, you're, you're relegated to debtor's prison and um, you can't get out of there, as it turns out, unless somebody on the outside pays your debt because there's no way for you to make income inside debtor's prison. So you have, you're, you're totally dependent and reliant on another person's grace outside of debtor's prison to pay your debt. So these two people had, one had an impossible amount of money, like who would ever pay his debt? Who could ever afford to pay 500 pieces of silver? Uh, in, in Greek terms, that was 500 denarii. So a denarii was equivalent to a full day of wage. So it was 500 days of wages that he owed. Um, and the other man uh, uh, 
a, a significant debt, but not quite as big, 50 pieces of silver. Um, so he's saying that neither one can afford it, but when their debts are canceled, which one, which one is, uh, has more loving feelings toward the man who canceled the death? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who he canceled larger debt. And Jesus says, that's right. And he then turns to the woman while he's still speaking to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's really speaking to Simon. So I just want to get that picture in your head. And he says to Simon, look at this woman. When I came in, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust my, my feet, but she's washed them with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she, she can't stop kissing my feet right now. You neglected uh, the anointing of olive oil on my head, but she's anointing my head with something even better, rare perfume. I'm telling you, she's the person whose 500 denarii debt was canceled because those who recognize their utter incapacity to pay back their debt and come throwing themselves on the grace of the one who can pay such a huge debt, they get their debt forgiven. And you, because you think, Simon, you have no debt or such a little debt that you can easily pay it yourself, you're not that interested. Um, you're not that grateful even for my presence here. And, and, and I know you're not that grateful for my presence here because you haven't done any of these things that uh, a host would normally do to honor an honored guest. You haven't done any of them. You don't really think you need me. Plus, you don't really think I am who I say I am. But she's done both of those things. She needs me and she sees me. Now this, uh, we're talking about why is relaxed a perfect word to describe Jesus. Think about the charged atmosphere here and what Jesus is really saying. He is upending the whole value system of this religious leader. And once again, he's uplifting the faith and the, the unmitigated love that another person is offering to him because that person recognizes who he is and is acting on it. So Jesus is relaxed enough in this highly charged situation. He, the, the onus is on him. What is he going to do with this woman who's doing this? Simon thinks, why doesn't he kick her out of here? Why is he waiting? Why is he letting her do this? Why is he letting her stay? He shouldn't put me in this position. I shouldn't have to throw her out in front of him. He should be the one throwing her out. And yet Jesus relaxes and accepts what she's doing. You know, grace is a very difficult and even offensive thing to accept. We don't mind having others owe us for something, but it is intolerable for us if we owe someone else. And in this case, Jesus is relaxed enough to receive what this woman is giving. She is spreading rare, expensive perfume on his feet. We know later on that Judas is upset with this kind of behavior that Jesus exhibits when he allows people to spend money on him, um, money that Judas says could go to the poor. Instead, Jesus is relaxed enough to receive this gift. Jesus not only gives grace, he receives grace. And only a relaxed, secure person would do that. In Jesus's reception of this woman's gift, he is showing how at peace with himself he is. Far from rejecting someone's good gift to him, he welcomes it and appreciates it and um, points out what a beautiful gift it is. So here we have uh, four stories from Luke chapter seven, all of them pointing out the beauty of Jesus's relaxed presence and the impact 
of that relaxed presence on those around him. Um, I think that in, in part, what, we are, what we're learning from these different stories is that um, Jesus is relaxed in a way that uh, invites our own relaxation response. Jesus is relaxed in a way that prompts our own relaxed uh, way of living. In, in fact, because he approaches us in a relaxed way, because we experience his heart as relaxed in these situations, it gives us the place to stand to also um, trust him and relax. So um, when you know the heart of the person um, that you're in intimate relationship with, and you know that that person is relaxed toward you, then you can also relax in response to him. You know, um, uh, my, my daughter Lucy is heading back to college and heading back to college is a big deal right now because of all the restrictions and the potentials. And she has been very vigilant at following all the uh, government and school guidelines uh, for responding to the pandemic, but she knows lots of students aren't and won't. And she's heading back into that tense atmosphere and it's starting to, you know, wrap her up some. And uh, she knows she's headed back into a very difficult, tense situation. And she, we were talking about Jesus being relaxed the other day. And she said, you know, uh, one thing I have to do every day is remember that Jesus is relaxed and he's in me. And I can stop and remember that Jesus is relaxed and I can give him my tension, my striving, everything. I can give that back to him. I can open my hands and receive his relaxed presence in me. And I guess that's what I want to leave with, leave with you today. Um, take a little baby step every day to move toward greater and greater trust in Jesus. And the only way that happens is to move toward his heart a little bit more every day. Just urge your way towards his heart a little bit more every day. And then invite his relaxed presence to go deeper in you. To, to give, him, give that relaxed presence more leeway in your life. Um, relax your white knuckles just a little bit every day and open them to his relaxed presence just a little bit every day. Recognize that he's relaxed even when you're not and that you can access that relaxed nature if, if you will move as this woman did and bow before him, weep over his feet, wash his feet with your hair, anoint his feet with your perfume and recognize who he is and bring your need to him. That's essentially what this woman did. She brought her need to him and in turn, he gave her his relaxed presence as a gift. That's something all of us can do today. All right, gang, thanks again for listening. This has been Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Um, this is season five, episode 29. If you want to check out links to uh, this podcast, you can go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, season five, episode 29. This is a, a podcast from RickLawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll talk again next time.